Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we're going to enjoy another classic episode of Tech Stuff in this episode. And uh, I, I promise new ones are right around the corner. I've got a cool one coming up in just a little while that you definitely want to check out. It's very important all about uh, the dangers of browsing the internet in an insecure way. But before we get to that, I thought maybe we could revisit this classic episode in which I talk about augmented reality. So this episode is titled Augmenting Your Reality, and it originally aired just a couple of years ago, and I thought uh, it'd be fun to revisit it. So let's sit back and enjoy this classic episode. So uh, I thought I would do a deeper dive, a bigger explanation about what augmented reality is, what it's all about, how it works, and sort of the uh, applications we might uh, put AR toward. Things that, you know, what is it good for? Tons of stuff, as it turns out. So the first thing we should do is probably define some terms, because if you haven't really looked into augmented reality and you aren't familiar with AR, you might just be lost. I'm going to define it all for you right now, because that's the kind of stand-up guy I am. Technically speaking, augmented reality is using digital information to enhance or augment an experience in our physical, real world. So the way we usually see this implemented involves some sort of display that has an image of the real world on it, and it overlays digital information on top of that image. So think of like a camera's viewfinder, like an LCD screen on a camera, and it actually labels the buildings that are in view when you're out on the street and you hold the camera up. Or a smartphone, or even a wearable device, like a head-mounted display that you can look through so you can see the real world. You're not just staring at a screen. Or if you are staring at a screen, you're staring at a video feed that is provided by an external camera mounted just on the other side of the screen. So it's like you're looking through a display in the first place. But then on top of that view, you have this digital information. Uh, That's the most common implementation we talk about, but it's not the only one. Augmented reality does not have to only be or even involve visual information at all. You could have audio-only augmented reality, for example. But the whole idea is that it's something that is created digitally to enhance your experience in the real world. Now, we can contrast this with the concept of virtual reality. Virtual reality, of course, is a term where you create an experience completely through computer-generated means. A computer is making all the things you see and hear and maybe even beyond that if you have really sophisticated uh, setups. So you might have some haptic feedback. Haptic refers to your sense of touch. So if you have haptic feedback, that means you're getting uh, information feedback through your sense of touch. A common example of this is a rumble pack inside a game controller where, you know, you fire a gun in a first-person shooter and your controller rumbles as a result, uh, letting you know that you are, in fact, unleashing virtual destruction upon all you survey. Well, the same thing can be true with a virtual reality setup. So virtual reality is all about constructing 
an artificial reality, a simulated reality. Augmented reality is all about enhancing the one that we are actually in. And then there's also mixed reality. Uh, mixed reality is kind of uh, sort of a, in between the two. You might have some physical objects within a room that are also mapped to a virtual environment. And then you use something like a head-mounted display to enter the virtual environment. That's what it looks like you're inside. But you have physical objects in the room around you that are also mapped to the virtual world, meaning you could pick up this physical object and you would see that reflected within the virtual world where you might you know, pick up a sword and shield or move a chair or something along those lines. So augmented reality, virtual reality, and mixed reality are all kind of interrelated, so much so that their histories also are very much interrelated. And uh, there's some people who try to collect these different technologies, these different uh, approaches, and put them under a common umbrella, and they tend to use the phrase alternate reality, which is unfortunate because that's also AR, but <laughs> alternate reality is kind of the umbrella for virtual, augmented, and mixed reality. Uh, now that, that kind of gives you the definition of those basic terms, and it is important to understand them because they're becoming more and more important today. You are already probably aware of a lot of VR headsets that are out there on the market, as well as VR, uh, well, they're, they're kind of like cases that you slide your smartphone into, so your smartphone becomes the actual display on a VR headset. The headset itself is more or less just a uh, a head-mounted case for your phone. We've seen a lot of those come out over the last few years. Uh, we've also seen a lot of AR applications come out, typically for things like iPads and smartphones, but we've also seen some hardware come out that uh, for wearable devices that falls into the augmented reality category, stuff like Google Glass, which I'll talk about more a little bit later in this episode. For augmented reality to work, to get this enhanced experience of reality around you, there are a lot of technological components that have to come together so that you actually do get an experience that is meaningful. Uh, you know, you, you have to have technology that quote-unquote knows where you are and what you are looking at or what you are close to in order to get that augmented experience. It wouldn't do me any good if I put on an augmented reality headset, for example, and stared at, let's say, a famous painting. And instead of getting information about the famous painting, I see an exploded view of a car engine. That would make no sense. So you have to build in technologies in order for the AR to understand what it is you're trying to do and to augment that experience. Which meant that we had to wait a pretty good long time for the various technologies that we use to to create this relationship to mature to a point where it was possible. Sometimes we had technologies that would allow us to do it, but it required uh, tethering headsets to very large computers, which meant that you didn't have really any mobility, and uh, it really limited the usefulness of the actual application. Uh, in other cases... You could say things like uh, your head tracking technology was absolutely necessary for AR to develop the way it did. Uh, GPS technology as well. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that we 
ordinary mere mortals didn't have access to really accurate GPS information. For a very long time, that was purposefully made less accurate. It was a matter of national defense. It wasn't until the 90s that you started to see GPS become more accurate for the the basic consumer. Way back in the day, you might get accuracy of up to around 100 meters, which is not great if you're looking for the next place to make your turn. If it's 100 meters away, that's that's pretty far. But now it's within a few feet, so it's much better. That sort of stuff all had to come together in order for augmented reality to become uh, viable. I almost said a reality, but that just starts to sound redundant. At any rate, let's talk about some of these technologies. Uh, we, we are... We really need things like gyroscopes, accelerometers. These help uh, devices understand their orientation, where they are in respect to something else. Like, are they, for a smartphone, it might be, is it in landscape mode or portrait mode? But for a head-mounted display, it would help give the the unit the information it needs to know which way you're looking. Like, are you looking to the east or to the west? That kind of thing. Uh also compasses, obviously very important, GPS sensors, image recognition software has become really important so that when you are looking at something, uh, the system can actually identify what that is. In some cases, you can get around this. You can design an AR system where, let's say you make a movie poster, and the AR application has the movie poster animate in some way. If you hold up a smartphone that's running the appropriate app. So I'm just going to take a, a movie from my past that does not have an AR movie poster associated with it, but one that I can talk about as if it were a good example. And that has to be Big Trouble in Little China, universally declared the best movie that has ever been made. So you've got your Big Trouble in Little China poster up on the wall, and you hold up your smartphone and you activate your Big Trouble in Little China movie marketing app and the camera on your phone detects the poster it's you know the poster's there well the app and the poster together are able to construct the augmented experience because there have been elements put into the poster that the app is looking for and once the app identifies that like it sees maybe eight different points on the poster and because of the orientation of those points it knows what angle it's at what height it's at in relation to the phone and can give you on your display the augmented reality experience. In this case, it's obviously Jack Burton and the Pork Chop Express eating a sandwich because, as we know, the most riveting scene in the movie unfolds in this way. So that would be kind of an augmented reality experience where you didn't have to worry about every possible application out in the real world, you made it for something very specific, which means in your software, you can have the camera uh, look, quote unquote, for these particular points of reference and thus create the augmented experience in that way. If you want to take that and move it to the real world where you can see augmented information about just the world around you, it becomes way more complicated. You have to have very sophisticated image recognition software so that the camera picks up the images, the software processes the information, identifies what those images are, and gives you the relevant information. So uh, working with all the sensors, augmented reality can make this a possibility. 
So another example, let's say you're out on the street uh, in Atlanta. You're here in my hometown, Atlanta, Georgia, and you're looking at a building and you wonder what it is and you hold up your phone and you've got your little map app uh, that allows you to look at a real world setting and tells you information about it. And it tells you it's the Georgia Aquarium. Well, first of all, you would probably know that already because the signage there is actually pretty good. But the point being that this would be uh, something that would tap into the GPS coordinates on your phone. So it would know where your location was and help narrow that down. The compass would tell it what direction you are facing. The uh, the camera angle also, you have some image recognition going on there. The accelerometer tells the orientation of the phone itself. All of this data together would give the software the information needed for it to display the label Georgia Aquarium on your phone. And it all happens in an instant, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, typically, you also have to have some other method to communicate with a larger infrastructure because we don't have the capability of building an enormously powerful computer that has all this real-world information programmed into it and make it a handheld or wearable device. So usually you have to pair these devices with some other larger infrastructure. Sometimes it's a double handshake. For example, with Google Glass, you would use Bluetooth to connect Google Glass to a smartphone. Then the smartphone would have the connection to the larger Internet through your smartphone's uh, cell service provider. So while you're experiencing the augmented reality through the Google Glass, it's actually communicating through your phone to the infrastructure to get the data it needs to show you the information it's showing you. Very important elements. And all of these components, like I said, came together more or less around the same time. Uh, most of them were being developed independently of each other. And it's just that now we're seeing them all converge. That's an old favorite word here at Tech Stuff converge together to create the augmented reality experience and make it possible. So how did we get here? How did these different elements develop? Well, there are a whole bunch of technology pioneers who really created the foundation for augmented reality as well as virtual reality and mixed reality. But one that I think we really need to concentrate on at first is Ivan Sutherland. Now, Sutherland was born in Hastings, Nebraska in 1938. And as a kid, he was fascinated with mathematics, uh, particularly geometry, and also with engineering. He began to study and experiment with computers while he was in school. And this was at a time where personal computers weren't a thing. There were no personal computers at this point. Computers were actually pretty rare and they were huge. And in fact, they often would rely upon physical media formats like punch, ca punch cards or paper tape to read a program. So... You didn't even have a disc or like you know, certainly nothing like a USB thumb drive or anything like that. You you actually had to put physical media into the machine for it to read and then execute whatever program you had designed for that device. He went to college at what is now Carnegie Mellon University on a full scholarship. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree. He would then go on to earn a master's degree at Caltech and a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from MIT. And actually, his doctoral thesis supervisor was Claude Shannon. 
And we talked about Claude Shannon back in the 2014 episode, Who is Claude Shannon? Uh, we recorded that not too long after Shannon's passing. So if you want to hear a really interesting story about a pioneer in computer science, you should go check out that 2014 episode. Back to Sutherland. For his thesis, he created something called Sketchpad. And that was really, by most accounts, the first computer graphical user interface, or GUI. A graphical user interface means that you interact with the computer through graphics uh, representing various commands on the computer. Windows and the Mac operating system are both examples of graphical user interfaces. As is the interface on your smartphone. If you have a smartphone where you choose applications on a screen... That's a graphical user interface. Well, Sutherland created what is largely considered to be the first one of those. After college, he entered military service, and he was assigned to the National Security Agency. We have great friends there, I assume. I'm sure they're listening, because they're listening to everything. At any rate, he entered the NSA as an electrical engineer, and in 1964, he replaced J.C.R. Licklider as the head of DARPA's Information Processing Techniques Office, or IPTO. And also, by back then, DARPA wasn't DARPA. It was just ARPA. Uh, so this is the same group, by the way, that would end up doing a lot of work that would form the ARPANET a few years later, and the ARPANET was the predecessor to the Internet. In, in some ways. At least the ARPANET was what ended up being the, the building blocks for the infrastructure that would become the Internet. Uh, now, all of that work happened after Sutherland had already departed the organization. His work became a fundamental component of both virtual and augmented reality, as I mentioned earlier. In 1965, he wrote a piece, an essay. It's very short. It's very easy to read, and you can find it online. The title of the essay is The Ultimate Display. And if you ever do any research in virtual reality or augmented reality, this essay is going to pop up in your research. So go ahead and read it. It's like two pages long, so it goes very quickly. Uh, in that essay, he talked about several ideas, including the idealized display, the ultimate display, something that would be the the furthest you could go with display technology. Now, keep in mind, in his time, by his time, he's still alive, by the way, but this time in the 1960s, he, uh, you know, things were uh, just restricted to monitors. You might have a light pen. Uh, but usually you would just use a, a keyboard. Like, it, it was pretty bare bones. But he said, let's push this as far as we can imagine it. And in his example, he thought of a room that would be completely controlled by computers. Everything you would experience within that room would be generated by a computer. Everything you see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. All of it generated by computers. The computer would even be able to form physical objects out of pure matter itself. Now, he wasn't suggesting that this would ever be a device that we would actually be able to build. He was just saying, what is the ultimate incarnation of display technology? And if you read it, you realize, oh, this is where the Star Trek Next Generation writers got their idea for the holodeck. But unlike Star Trek The Next Generation, the ultimate display would not go on the fritz every other episode and try to kill the crew. It was better than that. 
the ultimate display was sort of a, a a foundational, like philosophically, it was foundational for virtual reality and augmented reality. This idea of a very immersive experience where you as a user are surrounded somehow by this computer generated experience. And that's true both with augmented reality and virtual reality. In augmented reality, the real world is still there, but you get this enhanced experience that is completely computer generated. So in 1968, Sutherland and a student named Danny Cohen would create a VR AR head mounted display or HMD. And they nicknamed it the sword of Damocles. Why? Because you had to suspend it from the ceiling. It was too heavy to wear on your head. You needed it to be nice and sturdy. Uh, it included transparent lenses, which meant you could overlay computer information on the lenses themselves, and thus you could look through the lenses at the real world and have these wireframe graphics on top of what you were looking at. And it also had a magnetic tracking system, meaning that it had sensors that could detect magnetic fields, and as you turned your head or you changed the inclination of your head, it would change the magnetic field, and this would be relayed as a command to the visual center, the, the actual lenses themselves, so that it would the change would be reflected in what you saw. So if you have a virtual environment, and you turn your head to the left, you want the view within the virtual environment to go to the left, too. But without head tracking technology, that's impossible. So this was a very early example of head tracking technology. And again, it used magnets, magnetic fields in order to do that. Uh, obviously, that's also really important for augmented reality. Again, if the AR system doesn't detect that you are looking around, then you're not getting relevant information. Not for the specific thing you are looking at anyway. As I said, the graphics were pretty primitive. They were wireframe drawings, but they still showed that this was a, a viable approach to technology using HMD for augmented or virtual reality use. Oh, and one other note I should make. So a lot of people say the Sword of Damocles was the first head-mounted display. And they say, you know, this, the first HMD was made in 1968. I take issue with that. I don't think of the Sword of Damocles as the first head-mounted display. That, to me, should go to a different invention called the Headsight. H-E-A-D-S-I-G-H-T. Now, that was developed by Philco. And unlike the Sword of Damocles, it didn't create a virtual world. Instead, the Headsight was sort of a, a remote viewfinder for a video camera. So imagine that you got a camera mounted on a mechanical uh, swiveling mount. So you can move it left, right. You can change the orientation, the inclination as well. And then you have that mapped to a head-mounted display so that if I put the display on and I look to the left, the camera pans to the left. If I look to the right, it pans to the right, that sort of thing. It was meant to be a way for, for people to operate a camera in a remote location that might not be very friendly to a human being standing there. For example, the exterior of an aircraft. You could have a camera mounted on the outside of your aircraft. And that would allow an engineer on the inside to look around and 
maybe help a pilot land or navigate in a dangerous situation or just get an idea of the status of the aircraft itself. This was very much a technology that was being pushed by the military. An idea to create more military uses uh, using this technology to make the military more competent, more adept at very rapid changing situations on the technology front. So Headsight preceded the Sword of Damocles by about seven years. It came out around 1961. But again, it wasn't a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality headset. It was kind of a, like I said, a remote viewfinder. But still, I consider that to be the earliest head-mounted display, not the Sword of Damocles. However, Sutherland would end up going on to make lots of other contributions in computer graphics, as well as the overall concepts that would guide both virtual reality and augmented reality development over the next several decades. But now it'll be time for me to kind of move away from Sutherland and talk about some other developments that were important in AR. And before I get to that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. just left off with Ivan Sutherland. Now let's talk about a different father of augmented reality, Myron Kruger, or Dr. Myron Kruger. In 1974, Dr. Kruger created an augmented reality lab called Video Place. Uh, He was really into this idea of seeing the interaction of technology and people in artistic ways. He really wanted to explore artistic expressions using technology and people working together. So he wanted to create an artificial reality environment that didn't require the user to wear special equipment. You wouldn't have to put on a head-mounted display or wear special gloves or use any kind of device to control your actions because that's a barrier between you and the experience. Instead, His version consisted of a laboratory that had several rooms all networked together. And each room had a video camera in it and a projector and a screen. Now, the video camera would pick up the motions of the person inside the room. It would send information to the projector, which would then project the person's silhouette on the screen. And the silhouette was typically a really bright color. And you could move around and your silhouette would move around. So you almost became like a puppet master controlling your own silhouette. But then he started to incorporate other things like other elements that were virtually on the screen. The projector was projecting things that were on the screen, but not in the actual real room itself. So imagine a ball and a ball is being projected on the screen. Well, you could move around so that your silhouette would interact with the ball and the ball would bounce away. That sort of thing. So you would be able to interact with virtual environments by moving around in a real physical space. And while those objects weren't really there in front of you, you could see the representation of them on the screen. And this was really powerful stuff. And remember, I said these rooms were all networked together. So you could actually have a system where a person in one room and a person in another room both have their silhouettes projected together in their respective rooms on the screen. And your silhouette would be one color. The other person's silhouette would be a different color. And you could interact with one another. And 
according to reports from this art experiment, they noticed that whenever people would have their silhouettes cross one another, they would actually recoil in their physical rooms. Keep in mind, they're in different rooms. They're not in the same one together. They would recoil as if they had made physical contact or bumped into someone. So it showed that there was a very powerful psychological element to this virtual presence. And again, that psychological element plays a huge important role in VR and AR research and development, not just for creating products, but just to understand how we process information and incorporate it into our sense of reality. Not to get too deep for you guys. So experimentation in the field continued over the years. Uh, in the early 1980s, Dr. Kruger would write a book and publish it about artificial realities. But while the principles for augmented reality were established, the technologies were still rather unwieldy. They were large. They weren't reliable. And it would require several years of work to improve those technologies, to create miniaturization strategies, to get the elements down to a size that was more practical for that sort of use and wouldn't require you to have a head-mounted display mounted to the ceiling. And all of that took time. But you could tell that the ideas underlying augmented and virtual reality were already in place. In 1990, there was a Boeing researcher named Tom Caudell who coined the term augmented reality. And he was specifically using it to talk about this approach to overlaying digital information on top of our physical world to enhance it in some way. Now, Dr. Caudell earned a Ph.D. in physics and astronomy from the University of Arizona. And before contributing the term augmented reality to the public lexicon, he did extensive work in artificial intelligence research and development. He also became a professor in the fields of electrical and computer engineering at the University of New Mexico. So when he was working with Boeing, he used this phrase to talk about a specific system he was working on, an augmented reality system. And the whole purpose of this was to help people who were helping uh, construct airplanes lay cables properly. The whole idea was to use this system so that uh, an electrician can see exactly where the cable needed to go inside the partly constructed cabin of an aircraft. And that way you could follow the directions that you see through your display, lay the actual cable down where the guide tells you to go, and then you would have a properly wired airplane. Uh, and I'm sure, as we're all aware, properly wired airplanes are good airplanes. Improperly wired airplanes are not so good. So it was a very important system to make this much more smooth and fast. And it meant that you didn't have to have as uh, as many experts to guide the process. You could actually have someone come in who had never done this before and just follow the directions through this augmented reality set system and they could wire the airplane properly. So really clever means of using augmented reality. Also, we would end up seeing that same sort of philosophy used again and again in the future in more sophisticated uh, types of technology. But it was the exact same approach, exact same idea underlying it. In 1992, Louis Rosenberg proposed a system that the Air Force could use to allow someone to control devices from a remote location. And that consisted of a video camera 
which would provide the visual data to the user uh, through a head-mounted display. They would wear the display on their heads, or they would look at a screen, but typically they'd wear a display. And then they would also wear an exoskeleton on their upper body that would allow them to control some sort of robotic device, typically robotic arms. And usually the way this would work is that the display was designed in such a way with the video camera so that the view that the person had, it made it look like the robot arms were their actual arms, uh, which required a little bit of trickery on the part of Rosenberg. They had to fudge the distances between the video camera and the robotic arms to give this this sort of feeling that the robot arms represented your actual arms. So you move your arms inside the exoskeleton and the robot arms would move as well at their remote location. So you, it's kind of like a really fancy remote control. Now, imagine that the robot arms are holding various tools. Uh, the suit would also provide haptic feedback, that touch-based feedback, to let a user know more about what is going on when they're operating the arms. So if you were to uh, have, do something that would make a robot arm encounter resistance, then you would feel haptic feedback in the suit that would indicate, oh, you're, you're going beyond the parameters of where this robot arm is capable of going. So you learn very quickly wh where you can operate within that suit and make sure that you are not pushing it beyond its limits. You could also uh, end up using these tools to do various things in this remote environment. Now, Rosenberg called his system virtual fixtures, which meant that the user would see these virtual overlays on top of a real environment that they were looking at. So I'm going to give a very basic example that to, to illustrate this, because it's hard to imagine. It's hard to get it across in words. But let's say you're looking through a head-mounted display, and in front of you is a board, a wooden board. And it's just a regular wooden board. There's nothing painted on it or anything in the real world. And it's in a room that's across the building from you. You cannot see this with your own eyes. You can only see it through the video camera. The virtual fixture overlay might be a series of circles, and the circles are things that you are meant to cut out of the board using the robot arms and a tool that's right there inside the physical environment across the building from you. So you follow the patterns that you see in this virtual overlay, and you complete the task. That's a very simple example, and uh, this system was meant to allow for that. That's what he would call the virtual fixtures, these overlays that you would see that would appear to be real, but actually were not present in the physical environment itself. Now, also in 1992, a group of researchers at Columbia University were proposing a system that they called the Knowledge-Based Augmented Reality for Maintenance Assistance, a.k.a. Karma. Cute. Their approach was pretty novel. They pointed out that while augmented reality had tremendous potential, it also had a really big barrier in that it takes an enormous amount of time to design or animate and implement these graphic overlays for AR applications. So let's say you're in a room and you're looking at different objects and little labels are popping up for each object. If you're having to do all that by hand, it takes a huge amount of time. What they wanted to do was create artificial intelligence systems, or at least techniques, to generate graphics automatically on the fly. So 
this would be similar to using image recognition software so that if you look at a specific box, let's say, the image recognition software might be able to map that box to a specific product and thus give you an overlay of information about the product that would be inside that box. And it would be able to do all this automatically. It would not require a human programmer to go through and and look at every single product in every single type of box and program all that out. That would be ridiculous. It would take forever. So it was the work of this group with Karma that really started the ball rolling with this AI approach to automatically fill in that information and uh, make AR a more practical experience. Around the same time, between 92 and 93, uh, the Laurel Western Development Labs, which was a defense contractor, began to work with the U.S. military to create AR systems for military vehicles. And you can understand very quickly how... AR would have enormous potential for military applications. And in fact, AR is very commonly used in lots of different things, like pilot helmets, where it helps pilots keep track of targets uh, and identify potential threats, that kind of thing. But in this case, they were really looking at creating a augmented reality system that would create virtual opponents for people working in simulated wartime conditions. So really a training program. Imagine that you're operating an actual military vehicle, like a tank, and you have a view outside that is really an augmented reality system. So you're actually looking at the real world around you. You aren't just sitting in a simulator inside a building. You are out there in the field controlling a real vehicle moving around in real terrain. But you also see virtual representations of enemies in that real terrain and you can practice maneuvers and firing on enemies that sort of thing probably not using live ammunition at that point uh, but having a more realistic simulation in a real environment so that you're not just trying to create a totally virtual scenario uh, anyway that work was done in 92 and 93 uh, the world wouldn't really learn about it at large until about 99 because that's the way the military works. They're not so eager to talk about their stuff while they're still doing it. Meanwhile, at the same time, artists were continuing to explore the relationships between physical performers and virtual elements. You remember I talked about Dr. Kruger earlier. Well, in 1994, a different artist, Julie Martin, would create a piece called Dancing in Cyberspace. And in that piece, dancers on a physical space or a physical stage were able to manipulate virtual objects so an audience would be able to see both the physical performance by the dancers and the virtual reactions the things that happen within the virtual environment as a result of the dancers moving around their physical space pretty neat in 1995 uh, two researchers uh, Reki Moto and Nagao created their the first real handheld AR display, but it was a tethered display. It wasn't freeform. You couldn't just take it anywhere. It was called NaviCam, and you had to have a tether, like cable essentially, connect the NaviCam to a workstation, but it had a forward-facing camera, and you could use a video feed to go through this handheld device, through the uh, the cable to the workstation, and it could detect color-coded markers in the camera image and display information on a video see-through view, so you could get that augmented reality experience. Obviously very limited. You know, you could not just carry this around with you everywhere you go, but it showed the 
ideas behind augmented reality could in fact be realized in a handheld format. Now it was just a matter of getting those different uh, components small enough to all fit in a self-contained mobile form factor. Now, in the late 90s, we started seeing televised sporting events featuring augmented reality elements. Or at least you did. I don't watch sports ball. That's not entirely true, but I don't watch football or hockey, American football or hockey. Uh, and both of those were the, the sports that really got them first off. I'm going to backtrack. I used to watch hockey, but then Winnipeg stole the Atlanta Thrashers from me. Winnipeg! Okay, getting back to hockey. So hockey had the Fox Track system, which Fox put into hockey games, so that you could easily follow the puck. Instead of trying to watch this little bitty black disc spinning around, you got to watch this very bright, highlighted, neon-colored disc that everyone hated. And after about two seasons, Fox stopped doing it, and people were happy. Until the Thrashers moved away, and then it was just miserable. American football would follow suit in the late 90s and have the first downline introduced, where they could, on live video, overlay the first downline. Usually it's a bright yellow line that indicates how far the offensive team needs to go. And by offensive, I mean they're on the offensive. I don't mean they offend my sensibilities. I'm not that against American football, but it showed how far they would need to go in order to establish a first down, which I am told is something you want to do. Uh, that would start to get employed in 1998, and over time we would see that increase where eventually Skycam was able to even use this system. At first it wasn't. You could get a Skycam view, but you couldn't do the overlay of the first and ten line uh, until later. Well, I've got a lot more to say about augmented reality, but before I do, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, we're back. Let's skip ahead to 1999. I guess it's not really skipping. I just talked about 1998. Let's plot ahead to 1999. That's when NASA's X-38 spacecraft was uh, using an AR system as part of its navigational tools. So people back on Earth could look at a view from the spacecraft, a camera mounted on the spacecraft, and on top of that view, they could overlay map data to help with navigation. And all of that, of course, was controlled back here on Earth. But it was sort of an experiment to see how augmented reality could be incorporated into space exploration missions in the future and make them more effective. Also in 1999, the Navy began work on the Battlefield Augmented Reality System, or BARS, which is a wearable AR system for soldiers. You've probably seen various implementations of this over the years. It has obviously evolved since 1999. It's one of those pieces of technology that some soldiers took to, but a lot just felt that it created unnecessary distractions. Technology and warfare is very, very difficult because there's sometimes where we think, oh, more information is always better. But in some cases, that doesn't seem to hold true. Uh, and for some people with these head-mounted displays, or, or really it's heads-up displays, HUDs, uh, that can sometimes be the case. Depends on the implementation. In 2000, Hirokazu Kato 
created a software library called AR Toolkit. Very important software library. It was also open source, so anyone could contribute to it, uh, modify it, put out a new version, that sort of stuff. And it uses video tracking to overlay computer graphics on a video camera feed. Uh, and it's still a component for a lot of AR experiences today. Later on in the 2000s, this would be adapted so that it could also be used in web experiences, not just uh, native experiences to specific devices. And we continue to see AR built into new experiences, including smartphones and tablets. By 2004, some researchers in Germany were creating AR apps that could take advantage of a smartphone's camera. But 2004 is pretty early for smartphones. It really would would be a few years before this would truly take off because that's when Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007. Uh, that was the real revolution in smartphone technology. There had been smartphones before the iPhone, don't get me wrong, and many of them were really good. But it, the iPhone was something that caught the public's attention and made smartphones sexy. And because of that, there was a ton of money poured into the smartphone industry, as well as not just to Apple, but also to other companies like the companies that were offering Android smartphones. But I think we can really thank Apple for all of that happening in the first place, especially things like seeing that accelerometer where you could switch from portrait to landscape mode. I remember everyone freaking out about that when Steve Jobs showed it off in 2007 at Macworld. And uh, everyone thought, well, this is, the, uh, this is amazing. Well, we take it for granted now, but it was a big deal then. So once that smartphone revolution happened, it was a landslide victory for both augmented reality and virtual reality research and development because it meant that so much money was being poured into creating newer, thinner, more capable smartphones that we saw an explosion in technological development that could also be used for virtual and augmented reality experiences. So, for example, uh, think of those sensors I talked about earlier, accelerometers and uh, gyroscopes, that sort of thing. Well, we saw a lot of development in those spaces in order to make smartphones better, and people who were working in AR and VR experiences could take advantage of those same sensors, either creating apps specifically for smartphones, thus you don't have to build any other hardware, you just use existing hardware, but that limits how you can use it, right? Because you don't typically wear your smartphone directly in front of your face. Uh, or they could end up taking advantage of those new smaller sensors and incorporate them directly into brand new hardware, like various types of wearables, like Google Glass, for example, but that would be a few more years. In 2011, Nintendo launched the Nintendo 3DS, which included a camera. It was, you know, the 3D-capable uh, handheld device. and included, actually, a pair of forward-facing cameras, so you could take 3D photos if you wanted to. And it also had some AR software included with it. You would get these special Nintendo cards, kind of like playing cards, and if you were to point the camera of the 3DS at the card and look at the screen, you would see a little virtual three-dimensional character pop up on the card. So Mario would be an obvious example. You put the Mario card down on the table, 
you hold up the 3DS and you aim the camera at the card and you look at the screen and there's Mario. And Mario appears to be jumping around on your physical table. Now obviously if you look off of the display, there's no Mario jumping around. But on the display, there he is. And it was pretty cute. I remember being really impressed with this very simple implementation of AR when we got our 3DS. And then I took our 3DS apart. And then I took pictures of it. And then I posted it on Twitter. And people got sad. It's a great day. In 2013, Google introduced Google Glass. That was the wearable that included a small display positioned just above the right eye. Uh, so that when you look straight forward, you could tell that there was something kind of above your natural eye line, but it didn't get in the way too much. You to to look at the screen, you actually had to glimpse, you know, had to glance upward, and then you could see what was on the display. Google Glass had augmented reality features like crazy. You could see video calls. You could uh, actually uh, use the the glasses to not just uh, you, to take a video call, but show the other person what you are looking at, so they could see from your point of view. You could also overlay directions. So if you're walking down a street, you could glance up at the screen, and it would tell you if you needed to keep going straight or turn left or turn right, that kind of thing. It was really useful. Um, I had a pair of these Google Glass, and I really liked the direction they were going in. I felt that it wasn't a fully realized product at the time, and eventually Google agreed. And after a couple of years, they took Google Glass off the market entirely, and now you can't get them anymore. Uh, they were clever, but they were expensive, and they had some limitations. And... Like I was saying earlier, you know, it's hard to build all the components you need into one headset. So Google Glass would communicate via Bluetooth to your smartphone, and your smartphone would act as the actual nexus point to the Internet. But it was a neat idea, uh, and I enjoyed getting to use them while I did. So I keep hoping to see a return of that kind of technology, but perhaps in a more mature and less expensive format. Now, we've also seen applications uh, similar to the ones we mentioned earlier, the ones that are meant to guide people into laying out or repairing a system. We've seen that in the car world not too long ago. Uh, there was the MARTA system introduced by Volkswagen. MARTA makes me chuckle because that's also the name of Atlanta's public transportation system. But in this case, it stands for Mobile Augmented Reality Technical Assistance. And it's specifically designed for mechanics who are working on the XL1 vehicle. So if you hold up an iPad that has this app on it, and the camera is pointed at an XL1, and you look at the display, you'll see information overlaid on top of the car, including labels for all the different parts. So let's say you're a mechanic, and you have to do a specific repair on this vehicle. You hold up the iPad, you look through the display, and you see exactly what you need to do. It gives you a set of instructions, it shows you how you need to do it, tells you where you need to stand based upon the angle of the view. So if you hold it up and it says, no, you need to move about a foot to the right, you can do that, then hold up the iPad again, and it'll say, all right, you're in the right spot, make sure you loosen this particular bolt first, that kind of thing. And it's meant to be an interactive maintenance guide in a way maintenance and repair guide this is one of those applications of augmented reality i think is a no-brainer to me it's a killer app 
the idea of having an ability to work with something you are not 100% familiar with, but you're able to leverage the expertise of people who either designed it or built it or just fully understand it and get guidance based on their expertise in real time. So you're not having to go and consult a an article about it or watch a YouTube video. You get step-by-step instructions overlaid on top of your view of that thing. To me, that's the most compelling use of augmented reality from a practical standpoint. There are a lot of other uses that I'll talk about toward the end that I think are also really super cool. So don't get me wrong, it's not the only one. But uh, let's move on to 2015. That was when Microsoft would unveil the HoloLens, something I still want to try out. I have not had a chance to try a HoloLens yet. That is a headset capable of advanced AR applications. Everything from what I was just talking about, giving you guidance, step-by-step instructions on how to do like a repair job on, say, an electrical outlet. You could even use a Skype system to call an expert who can then view your point of view and interact with that point of view. So let's say I'm looking at the outlet the expert electrician I'm talking to can see what I see and he or she can also make notes on the display, which shows up in my field of view. So he or she might circle a specific wire and say, you need to, you need to remove that one first. And I know I need to do that one first because I can see which one they are talking about. Or they might circle another wire and say, no matter what you do, don't cut this wire or the toilet upstairs will explode like Lethal Weapon 2. And I won't do that because, you know, that guy's like three days from retirement. So I have a heart. But no, this is this is a really neat idea, having this interactive ability to overlay the information from the world, the digital world, onto your physical world. And beyond that, the HoloLens has lots of other functions. It's not just something to do, you know, home repairs around the house. You can also use it for entertainment purposes. Like you could uh, create a screen that can show you video from various sources and you can assign it a place on a wall in your environment. Let's say that you're in your living room and you just uh, create a screen so you can watch Netflix and you slap it on a wall and it will stay in that same position relative to your point of view. So if you look to the left or right, the screen stays where you put it, as if it were physically there on your wall. But keep in mind, it's just a virtual screen. And when you look back to that part of your wall, you'll see the virtual screen there, playing whatever it was that you wanted to watch. Uh, I think that's a super cool idea. And they've also shown off games like uh, a game of Minecraft that uses HoloLens so you can actually view a Minecraft world sitting, appearing to sit at any rate, on top of a table. So you can walk around the table and view the Minecraft world from various angles and play that way. Uh, I think that's super neat. Don't know how compelling it is because, again, I haven't tried it myself, but I really like the idea. This year, 2016, AR got another big boost from a little game called Pokemon Go. Although, I have to admit, this was a really primitive, basic implementation of augmented reality. Really, it was not much more than just a... In fact, it was nothing more 
than just an animated overlay that would exist on top of the camera view of your of your device. So let's say I'm holding up my smartphone and I'm trying to catch a Jigglypuff and uh, the Jigglypuff is currently bouncing up and down on the sidewalk in front of me. That's about as far as the augmented reality actual experience would go. So very primitive, but because Pokemon Go became so popular so quickly, it really pushed the concept of AR to the front of the minds of people everywhere, including business owners who immediately said, we need an augmented reality app. Whether they actually needed one or not is beside the point. A lot of people got into AR because of Pokemon Go uh, for both good and bad. I always think that you have to come up with the experience first. You have to understand why you need to use a specific strategy to create a specific experience and then build it. Not, hey, we need augmented reality. Make something that's AR. To me, that's the backwards way of going about it. Uh, but what do I know? I'm not a, not a programmer, so I'm sure the programmers feel in a similar way to, to me, but that's just a guess. Now, the future of AR depends heavily upon the applications we see and which ones end up being successful and which ones aren't. Uh, right now, I would say that the best bet is to see more AR features built into smartphones and tablets. Uh, not Maybe not necessarily built into them, but have apps available that create AR experiences for very specific contexts. Like, let's say it's a museum app. You might download a museum app on your phone, and when you go to the museum and you use your phone, you can get more information about the paintings and sculptures and other installations that you see in the museum. That's an easy one to understand. But that same app isn't going to be useful once you leave the museum. You no longer have the context that it is tied to. I think that smartphones are probably going to be where the greatest development is going to be in the near term. Because wearables is still really hard to do. We still don't have a, a consumer version of the HoloLens out available for anyone to purchase. Uh, and it may never come out as a consumer product. Microsoft hasn't shown a whole lot of interest in making it a consumer product. Maybe that will change. But at the moment, I wouldn't hold my breath. So I would argue smartphones and tablets are pretty much where it's at. Maybe some implementation with some existing uh, VR headsets, which have external cameras mounted on them as well, like forward-facing cameras. You could build AR experiences there. Then it gets a little weird because you're you're also you know you're looking at a monitor, uh, so you're looking at a video feed of your surroundings, and on top of the video feed you get the overlay. Same thing is true for your smartphones and tablets, by the way, uh, but different that from the Google Glass implementation where you're looking at the actual physical world, not a video representation of it, but the real world. And then because the display itself that you are looking through is transparent. You're looking at a transparent overlay of digital information that gives you more uh, info about the world you are in. I think AR is super cool. I think it's really got a lot of potential to change the world around us and to change the way we interact with the world around us. You could imagine a dystopian future implementation of AR where we all have to wear glasses and we're constantly getting personalized commercials beamed at us whenever we look at anything. Like, imagine walking past a store, casually looking in the window, and then getting a whole bunch of ads for all the stuff that's in the store window. That would be obnoxious. And it's easy to understand how people would not want that, yet also easy to understand how that could possibly become a future. Or, 
Think of the future where your privacy is no longer even relevant. And you walk down the street and you look at all the people's faces who are also walking down the street and you're getting names of everybody and what they like and what they dislike, you know, what music they tend to listen to, maybe what they're listening to right now. And it's all because we've got facial recognition technology. Almost everyone has some sort of social media presence. So you can map that face to any public profiles, try and find a match. If you found a match, you could bring back information to the person wearing the glasses. So I can look at somebody and say, oh, this uh, this cute kid over here, she's got a, she likes uh, punk rock music. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress her with my knowledge of uh, the cramps. That probably wouldn't work. But the point being that it's pretty creepy and invasive. And so there are some negative implementations of AR that we have to watch out for. Unless we get to a point where we just don't care about privacy at all anymore. Some would argue we're already there. And in that case, this implementation of AR may not sound creepy at all. It might just sound kind of cool. Kind of the equivalent of walking into a store, seeing a person with a name tag and addressing them by name. If they don't remember they have a name tag on, they have this moment where they, they think, do I know you? But if we're in a world where everyone can see everyone's name all the time, then, well, for one thing, I won't ever have to worry about coming at a loss when I have to introduce my wife to someone. So that's a that's a plus side. And I hope you guys enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff. If you have any comments or questions, reach out on social media. We are available at Tech Stuff HSW, both on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also go to our podcast page. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You can find a link to every episode we've ever recorded there. You'll also find a link to our online store where there's lots of Tech Stuff merchandise. So you can go ahead and spend all that hard-earned cash on really cool tech stuff products. I mean, seriously, we do have some really neat ones. If you haven't checked it out, go at least take a look at the designs. I think you'll find them amusing. And who knows, maybe you'll find a new favorite tote bag or t-shirt. And remember, every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 